Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, Interim Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With us today as a special guest and a repeat guest at that is Dr. Ellie Thiel, who is our laboratory director for the Infectious Diseases Serology Lab at Mayo Clinic. And she is also the co-director of our vector-borne disease testing services line along with me. So we both have a special interest in vector-borne diseases, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. You know, it's getting to be about that time of year with ticks and mosquitoes. So Dr. Thiel, I think this is very timely. It is. I'm excited to be back. I'm excited to talk about something that we both have a strong interest in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So specifically, we wanted to talk about West Nile virus. There is the big 2021 outbreak and it's making the news again. I think that people are starting to wonder if we're going to see another big outbreak. So let's talk about that. And maybe we'll just start with the basics to level set. Can you tell us a little bit for all the listeners what West Nile virus is? And why is all of it in the news right now? Yeah. So in 2021, you know, we were still dealing with COVID. And on top of that, Maricopa County in Arizona had the largest outbreak in a single county of West Nile virus, I think, in the U.S. ever. They had over... 1,400 cases. We talked about an outbreak the last time I was on the podcast. And again, we're talking about these large outbreaks. So West Nile virus, it's a flavy virus. It's transmitted by mosquitoes, similar to other flavy viruses that our viewers are probably familiar with, like dengue and Zika, St. Louis encephalitis virus as well. So West Nile is specifically transmitted by Culex species mosquitoes. There's really two mosquito genre that we're most concerned about in the U.S., as you know, Dr. Pritt, uh, Culex being one of them, the other are 80 species mosquitoes. We kind of talk about the different species because they have different biting patterns. So Culex like to bite at dawn and dusk, whereas 80s mosquitoes like to bite mostly during the day. And that comes into kind of some of the prevention strategies that we'll talk about. But West Nile, again, flavivirus transmitted by Culex species mosquitoes. It's maintained in the environment in birds, various different bird species. They're the natural reservoirs. Whereas uh, humans, when we get infected with West Nile virus, we're actually considered dead-end hosts. So we cannot, or I should say naive mosquitoes, cannot get infected from infected humans because we just don't sustain a high enough viral load to infect mosquitoes, night mosquitoes. Well, it's interesting to talk about mosquitoes and the different types. You and I do this all the time, you know, (laughs) over a cup of coffee, it's the best topic, right? (laughs) But a lot of people don't really give much thought to mosquitoes. We actually just celebrated World Malaria Day a few weeks ago, and we were celebrating the successes of getting numbers down worldwide, but that's another malaria transmitted infection. And the statistics show that the mosquito is the deadliest animal in the world. Yes, I more than sharks, more than the other poisonous snakes and things you think about being deadly animals. So mosquito borne diseases are really pretty serious. 
they definitely are. It's one of my favorite graphics to bring up um, (laughs) when talking about vector-borne diseases. So West Nile transmitted by mosquitoes, but I think we also need to just remember that it can also be transmitted by transfusion of blood products. And so because of that, in 2005, I believe, the FDA started requiring that blood products be screened for West Nile virus by molecular assays, as well as serologic tests as well. And then since then, I don't think we've had um, transfusion-related infections, although it is possible in different regions of the world. Yeah, very good point. So what makes people talk about West Nile virus now? Why is this coming up in the news? Yeah, so I think two reasons. One, it is that time of year. You know, we're all thawing out in the north, the south, is warming up more than usual. So it is, you know, we're entering mosquito and tick-borne disease season. So I think it's important for the public and the laboratories to start, you know, thinking about these diseases. But then also recently the CDC put out a report on the large outbreak that occurred in Maricopa County, Arizona in 2021. And that has been picked up by multiple news outlets. One of the things that came out of that report is it just seemed that the public, you know, while you and I and our colleagues think about West Nile virus almost all the time, it became apparent that even during this outbreak in Arizona, the public just was not aware of how to prevent infections. And so that's one of the the goals of the report from the CDC was to just make it more visible in the public eye and just make individuals more aware of how to protect themselves from infection. Yeah, I agree. That's really important. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Maybe Mm -hmm. we could first start by talking about the symptoms of West Nile virus infection, though, so people know why this is a potentially uh, very important and serious disease. Sure. So it's an overused metaphor, but I'm going to use it. So (laughs) those symptoms of West Nile virus are very much like an iceberg. So the vast majority of infections are under the water. They are asymptomatic Roughly 80% of individuals will be infected and not actually have symptoms. They will not know that they are infected. Then you have roughly 15 to 20% of individuals that will be infected and they'll have kind of these influenza-like symptoms. So abrupt onset of fever, which can get pretty high, malaise, myalgia, roughly half of those individuals will develop a rash that can be on your torso as well as on your extremities. And that is kind of a self-limiting stage of disease, anywhere from three to 10 days after onset, you know, people will typically resolve those symptoms. But then the, the tip of the iceberg is really those individuals that go on to develop a severe form of West Nile virus infection, which is central nervous system or neuroinvasive disease. And that can present as um, meningitis or encephalitis, or in in some patients, an acute flaccid paralysis that can be pretty serious. A lot of those patients will resolve their infection, but roughly 40 to 50% will have ongoing neurologic symptoms. And that particular stage of disease is associated with a 10% mortality rate. So it is pretty serious. Yeah, definitely something you don't want and you want to avoid with some of the things that we'll be talking about. Let's first talk about testing, though. You have tests in your laboratory that test for this virus. I have some in mine, but maybe you can give our listeners the overview of the different types of tests and how they'd be used. 
Yeah. So, you know, sometimes the question I first get is, you know, you have testing, but what's the point of testing? So mm-hmm. A, we, we obviously want to provide a diagnosis, which also has some prognostic capabilities, but it's also a way that we continue to monitor and surveil essentially for West Nile virus infections. Um, all of our positive results, whether it's from your lab, the PCR tests that we'll talk about, or my lab, the serologic assays, those get reported to public health laboratories, which then kind to get a sense of how big of if there's any significant transmission events mm-hmm. happening. Testing, again, two primary types, molecular testing, so detecting West Nile virus RNA, and then serologic testing, looking for the humoral immune response to the infection. And really the decision of which test to use when is dependent on patient presentation. So how Mm -hmm. far along they are in their symptoms and infection before they, they present. And then also to an extent, test availability. So typically, when we think about West Nile virus infection and viremia, it peaks pretty early on after infection, say in the first three to five days. Mm -hmm. So in patients that present later than that, seven, 10 days, let's say, they could very well be negative by PCR assays, simply because the viral load is diminishing and trending downwards. On the flip side, serologic assays, you know, we start developing an immune response to West Nile virus about five to seven days after infection. So in those patients that present later on in their disease course, we'd want to use a serologic assay instead. Often though, in those early infection stages, clinicians will order both assays Mm -hmm. to kind of cover that potential window period, if you will. You know, this reminds me of when the COVID virus first started circulating. And of course, we were all talking about antibodies and PCR, but it's the same principles. It takes several days to develop a detectable antibody response, whereas the RNA of the virus could be detectable in that early stage. Probably, though, as you mentioned, that's important for our listeners to know is that the stage of viremia for West Nile virus is relatively short. Mm -hmm. We have found that urine might be a better source for picking it up after, say, the first several days and maybe out as long as nine or 10 days. Of course, when we did PCR testing and we validated the test we use in my lab, we looked at all of that. So we offer testing on urine for those later stages. But yes, once you get past the first few days, you really start getting more into the antibody detection territory. You know, it's it's really interesting about the urine, right? Because we found that not just for West Nile virus, but also for other vector-borne mm-hmm. viruses like Powassan, I think is a great example, which we've talked about before. Right. And Zika so, virus. And Zika virus. That's right. Mm-hmm. So um, it seems like that viremia seems to be detectable for longer periods of time in urine. Right. Um, and Moving on to serology, so there's IgM, which is your acute marker of infection, and IgG antibody tests. And for West Nile virus, and really for any flavi- vector-borne flavivirus, if you have an IgM positive result, that's only with no other no IgG detected, that's really strongly suggestive of a recent infection. An IgG only result, on the other hand, most likely probably indicates past infection. Those can be remain positive for very long periods of time. Um, Well, that kind of goes back to your iceberg analogy, the large group of people under the water or the iceberg, mm -hmm. however you want to say it, that had West Nile virus infection and didn't know it. They could be positive down the road if they are to be tested. They'd be positive with IgG only, most likely, 
Right. That could just mean past infection. It doesn't necessarily mean acute infection. That's right. Yep. And IgM, even though we, you know, it's, it's a good acute marker, but it too for West Nile virus can remain positive for multiple months, if not longer after infection. So it's really important that clinicians correlate, right? Mm -hmm. Is it the right time of year? Can I show seroconversion of IgG? Is it in the right location, right timing for patient presentation when interpreting those results? Because you can get cross-reactivity with IgM antibodies to other flaviviruses, for example. Yeah, no, I'm glad also that you mentioned the question of why would testing be important? And so we're talking about all these different types of tests. It's important to know what the patient has for several reasons, not just tracking outbreaks and knowing what's circulating, but also because that patient may have something else. And so you may want to consider testing for that if all your West Nile virus tests are negative or if your West Nile tests are positive, well, maybe the patient doesn't need to be on antibiotics and you could stop unnecessary treatment. So right. it's something that we try to talk a lot about on this podcast is where are the subject matter experts on testing? And we really need to work with our patient-facing colleagues that are ordering the tests so we can create these ordering guidelines and really understand how the tests are going to be used. And it's really a partnership working together. And we did that with a number of different diseases, including vector-borne diseases, so that people ordering the tests hopefully can look at the algorithms we've co-created and know which test to order when and how to interpret those results. Yeah, it, it is really important because even though, you know, you and I talk about it all the time to each other, that is apparently not the case in the real world, right? <laughs> I don't so know why, but... <laughs> I don't know. So having those algorithms, you know, that are available, I think are really beneficial for those individuals that just need a reminder, okay, these are positive, these are negative, how do I interpret, what do I do next? Yeah. Well, rounding up talking about testing and we've talked about clinical, we really didn't cover treatment for West Nile, although we kind of hinted at it. Do you want to just tell our audience about treatment? Right. So It'll there's short. It's short. <laughs> no targeted antiviral treatment, all yeah. supportive care only, unfortunately. Unfortunately. And there's no vaccine at this point either. So maybe in the future, but so it really is just supportive care, but still important to know and thus right. the importance of testing. Well, why don't we finish up by telling people how they can prevent getting this potentially terrible and even deadly infection? Yeah. So, you know, there's a few things to be aware of. So obviously EPA registered or approved insect repellents is always something to strongly consider when you're going to be going outside. Using window and, and, and door screens to not let mosquitoes inside your house is also really important. If you're going to be going outside, you know, it is hot. So I cannot get my kids to wear long sleeve pants and shirts in the summer, but that is, you know, another good option especially if we're going to be going in like swampy, muddy, wet areas where mosquitoes can breed. And then around your home, really protecting that by emptying out any bird baths or any other containers that are holding rainwater for long periods of time, because that's where these mosquitoes breed and lay their eggs and really thrive. So emptying out any containers that contain water. And I think those are really the key points. So insect repellent, wearing long sleeve clothes if you can tolerate it in the heat, and then making sure that you're emptying out any standing water in your yeah. And would you also say there might be certain times of the day or night that you would want to be extra careful? 
Yeah, you know, for West Nile virus, kind of like we mentioned, Culex species, mm -hmm. mosquitoes like to bite at dusk and dawn. So be aware of those times. Then you have 80s mosquitoes that transmit other things during the day. So right. really any time of the day would be a good time to avoid getting mosquito bites. Very good point. And a lot of these preventative measures are also good for ticks. Of course, if you wear a repellent that is good against ticks and mosquitoes, something like DEET or Picaridin that you can spray on your skin, permethrin you can spray on clothing and gear, those are all good for ticks and mosquitoes. So it's probably best to just uh, protect against all of our biting critters these days. Yes, they are. You know, it's not just West Nile virus, unfortunately, right. um, that we have to think about. There have been dengue outbreaks in the U.S., my, mm -hmm. small at this point, but, you know, we've documented those and all sorts of other vector-borne diseases to be aware of. Yeah. Well, Ellie, this has been really just enlightening, and I think that uh, lots of great information and also very timely, given that we're now in spring. And here in Minnesota, we're finally getting some flowers. I'm sure if you live elsewhere in the world, you probably have flowers already. But regardless, this is the season. Tick-borne, vector-borne, mosquito-borne diseases really peak in the summer. So thank you again for joining us and for all of the great information. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.